This is a Federal News Network podcast. What promises to be a long accounting for the federal response to the pandemic, it's already underway. One agency that was called to respond early is FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. A recent report from the Homeland Security Office of Inspector General found a mixed bag. Here with details, the DHS Deputy Inspector General for Audits, Bruce Miller. Mr. Miller, good to have you on. Hey, it's great to be here, Tom. I really appreciate the opportunity. And let's begin with what the agency was called to do early in the pandemic. I mean, you look back to the early parts of 2020 when this all kind of hit the country, correct? That is correct. And before I jump into FEMA's specific response, let me say that it's noteworthy to mention that, you know, we purposefully started this audit very, very early on in the pandemic. And FEMA began implementing corrective actions immediately and improving processes and system information issues in real time. And we see real value when we have the opportunity to impact something on the front end. But back to FEMA's specific response, you know, at the onset, while Health and Human Services was the lead federal agency, FEMA provided significant logistical support, such as interagency coordination, information sharing, and coordination through its regional response coordination centers. Then, in March 2020, the president issued emergency declarations for all states and territories, and so FEMA took on its Stafford Act responsibilities to prepare for, protect against, and respond to the pandemic as it would during other natural disasters. The big difference here, Tom, though FEMA has never had a natural disaster affect all 56 states and territories at the same time, this one certainly did. So it was an absolutely unprecedented challenge for FEMA. And despite some of the challenges we identified, they did ultimately help facilitate the shipment of personal protective equipment and ventilators throughout the country. Yes, and you point to something I think that's important, and that is they were able to do so in collaboration with a totally different department, HHS, that was the lead on much of this. I mean, often it takes federal agencies two years to do a minor memorandum of understanding. Yeah, that's correct. And I think FEMA's experience with the Stafford Act and having to coordinate with multiple federal agencies through natural disasters really assisted them in helping out with this pandemic. And because of the newer materials and the oddball things relative to other disasters that they had to uh, deliver, what did you find with respect to FEMA's preparation and the kind of support systems it had in place for something like this? Yeah, so FEMA had to fulfill, you know, different requests. You know, we talked about managing the coordination, and to do that, they activated the National Response Coordination Center and their Regional Response Coordination Centers, which really helped the federal government identify the stakeholders that needed to be involved. They also established a unified coordination group, and they ensured that all levels of government worked together in unity. As far as specific systems, FEMA used its Web Emergency Operations Center system to fulfill resource requests. And this is the system that FEMA uses for natural disasters. States, territories, tribes, and other federal agencies can access that system to request federal assistance for resources or personnel support. And again, during most disasters, you know, you're talking about a small number of users in a geographic area. You know, during the pandemic, it was all states and territories making requests for uh, resources. Yeah, and that's really something that you point out that's important, and that is typically FEMA responses are localized or regionalized, maybe a couple of counties, that type of thing. But this exposed the entire nation, and therefore the supply system for the nation seemed to lock up, as we all learn. We're still living with it in some sense. And so maybe we should give FEMA credit for discovering a flaw in the national distribution system of these types of goods that probably no one anticipated. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, fair commentary, Tom. And 
again, it's a good thing that they had a system of record that all 56 states and territories, you know, could make requests to begin with. So I would agree. And what were some of their challenges in this? What could they have done more sharply, do you think? So as it relates to uh, the distribution of ventilators, Tom, FEMA developed and communicated, for that matter, a very standardized process for allocating a limited supply of ventilators. So stakeholder confusion or questions on, you know, did they request the right way? Are they going to get what they requested? That actually worked very well. However, they didn't have a similar process for personal protective equipment. And the volume of requests for masks, gloves, gowns, other gear used to protect frontline workers did expose challenges with the system. It just really wasn't suitable for clearly identifying different types of resources, such as different sizes, materials for gloves, or types of masks initially. However, FEMA found out that issue very early on and was able to correct it very early on during our audit. We did also find some systemic issues with validation processes that would have prevented potential errors or incomplete fields. Specifically, what we really found was missing requesters. So, you know, who is making this personal protective equipment request? Missing type of equipment wasn't always included. And then duplicate supply request entries. And what this really did is it made it difficult for the national and the regional centers to make well-informed decisions. And it did contribute to some stakeholder confusion about FEMA's adjudication and allocation processes. We're speaking with Bruce Miller, Deputy Inspector General for Audits at the Homeland Security Department. So are you saying this is a problem with their information system design, that those fields or that data wasn't collected, or was it some other problem? So it it was a couple of things. It was the validation controls on the front end, for instance, that didn't prevent duplicate requests. And, you know, in a situation like this, if you've got duplicate requests and you have such limited resources you know, you're really putting a strain on whether or not you can get the right resources to the right folks. So there were some internal control issues on the front end. The second issue that we really identified is there were just more people accessing this system again, you know, because you have all the states and territories. So they had so many new and returning users that they just weren't really terribly familiar with the system. And with the time crunch, it was very difficult to get those users trained very early on. So that definitely created some of the issues as well. And I imagine some of the requesters panicked and maybe sent in the request three times. If we think we need 10,000 gloves, well, let's get 30,000 because there's only 30,000 in the country or something like that. That's very possible. You know, we didn't dig into each individual circumstance of those duplicate requests, but in theory, I would say that that's probably very good. And have things pretty much settled down to normal at this point? Has FEMA kind of backed out of this whole process? Because for those supplies and most of the ventilators, it turns out, weren't actually needed, I think we found out later on. But for all the rest of the supplies, is that kind of normalized at this point? Yeah, so we haven't done a verification review at this point to follow up on our initial work. But in our communications with FEMA, we believe that to be the case, yes. All right, so it exposed weaknesses. Your study exposed weaknesses when there's a kind of a mass, sudden, high-demand, widespread event. What were your recommendations for being prepared for the next peak? We ended up making three recommendations in this report. And the first was specifically to the system issues, and that was to develop additional internal controls and to ensure new users receive formal training. And this will help improve the data reliability in the system moving forward. The second recommendation was to formally document processes and procedures for making informed and consistent resource allocation decisions. This really helps get to that stakeholder confusion. They can completely understand the adjudication decisions. And then finally, with this being an unprecedented event for a pandemic, 
you know, we recommended FEMA work with Health and Human Services to issue clarifying guidance defining agencies' roles and responsibilities under Stafford Act declarations specific to pandemic-related response. So if you add all those up, internal controls, improvement, better training, better documentation and guidance and so forth for the interagency aspect, that's very different from saying, well, you better stockpile 10 million masks and 500 million gloves, as opposed to saying, here's what you need to be resilient the next time this could happen. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Yes, Tom, that's a very fair way. And what was FEMA's reaction so far? So FEMA concurred with all of our recommendations, Tom. Right now, they plan to address the data reliability issues. They're developing a plan to address training gaps. They also plan to analyze and address how staffing requirements were impacted, specific to those new users, by the expanded mission set. They're also, you know, to improve resource allocation processes, FEMA is going to issue updated guidance. Specifically, they're incorporating COVID-19 lessons learned and best practices in their revised biological incident annex and the pandemic crisis action plan. So now the challenge is making sure all of that material is available and current, should there, we hope not, but should there be a next time? Absolutely, Tom. Yes, they'll be very much better prepared in our opinion. Bruce Miller is Deputy Inspector General for Audits at the Homeland Security Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks, Tom. Really appreciate the opportunity. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, 
I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. 
Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Ladies, we know what we want from our birth control. But what about what's in our birth control? That's why I chose the 100% hormone-free Paragard intrauterine copper contraceptive. It's the only birth control that uses just one simple active ingredient to prevent pregnancy over 99% of the time with no hormones and no daily routines. Paragard is a small IUD that prevents pregnancy for up to 10 years using copper. Ready to get what you want? Talk to your healthcare provider to see if Paragard could be right for you. Don't use if you have a pelvic infection, including PID, get infections easily, certain cancers, Wilson's disease, or a copper allergy. Pregnancy is rare but can be life-threatening and cause infertility or loss of pregnancy. Paragard may attach to or go through the uterus. Tell your healthcare provider if you miss a period, have abdominal pain, or it comes out. At first, periods may become heavier and longer with spotting in between. It won't protect against HIV or STDs. For product information or to learn more, visit Paragard.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.